Nehemiah chapter 3. And we're just going to read three verses, well, four, um, but we're going to come back to, we're going to do a little different. I'm not going to just go verse by verse. We're going to cover today uh, the whole chapter from an overview standpoint, and then we'll come back to um, the same thing next week, and then the week after that, we will look at a message that I intended to preach today, but the Lord said, no, 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 go, drill down on these gates, spend some more time here. So you all have handouts. Did you see that? You're like in a college classroom today. Uh, you have handouts, and there's notes on the back, and you say, but if I'm writing the notes, I can't see the picture. The picture will be up on the screen, so you'll be able to still, if you like pictures and maps, then you still will get to look at that, and the one on the screen will be in color, so you'll actually appreciate that as well. Uh, but you, uh, you can take some notes. We're only going to get through five of the gates today, and we'll cover the other five next week, but... Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 12. And next to him was Shalom, because we left off with verse 11. And next to him was Shalom, the son of Halohesh, leader of half the district of Jerusalem. He and his daughters made repairs. You hear that, men with daughters? You, do you hear that? Amen. He and his daughters. <laughs> yeah. We'll talk more about that in two weeks when we talk about a message I'm working on called Start Where You Are. And that is in the home. But we'll look at that because there's a lot here in this third chapter. But moving on to verse 13, but I do love chapter 12, uh, uh, verse 12. It's highlighted in my Bible uh, because I have three girls and no sons. So if we're going to make repairs around the house, that's the way it works uh, as well. <laughs> Man and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with its bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. Uh, Mahalash whatever, the son of Rechab, the leader of the district of Beth. It's funny, I was reading different commentaries, and, and they said that these names are an exercise in linguistics, and there's really no recording of how they're pronounced. No one really knows. So you can pronounce them however you want. So uh, go on. I, and then when I see one that's just slowing me down, I just move on past. Beth Hasarim repaired the refuse gate. He built it and hung its doors with its bolts and its bars. Shalom, the son of Kol Hazay. Uh, leader of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate and built it and covered it and hung its doors with, bark, uh, with bolts and bars and repaired the wall of the pool of Shelah by the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. Now, you'll actually see this if you go to Israel. We'll go down those stairs all the way to the pool that's at the bottom, which is pretty cool. So you'll get an opportunity, those of you to go, you'll see that area. But we'll stop there. I'm not going to read the other verses which outline all the other gates uh, but this morning, as we look at these ten gates, and you have the handout on your, uh, on your chair there, we understand first off that these were ten literal gates, right? These were ten literal gates. You really could walk through. Well, before uh, Nehemiah got there, they were not even hung. They were burned with fire. They had to rebuild the gates. They had to put the gates back up. But they were ten literal gates that historically served both protective and practical purposes in ancient Jerusalem. <clears throat> Nehemiah was sent to repair the walls and the gates. For what? For needed protection and God's blessing on the city and on the people. Do you want God's blessing? How about, all, how about for our city? 
or just for you. No, we want God's blessing for both, and we also want his protection. We know that there's practical benefits to serving and following the Lord. Now, there were actually a total of 12 gates. There's only 10 listed here. There was actually 12 gates. Um, if you look at the map here, again, we, we're looking at just the 10 that are named here in chapter 3. But there were 12 around the city, but Nehemiah only speaks of 10 as being the focus of repairs. These 10 were the focus of the repair job. The other two gates, called the Ephraim Gate and the Prison Gate, they're mentioned in chapter 12. So you've got to go all the way to chapter 12 before they're even mentioned. But the 10 gates, and they're itemized here in detail, if you go all the way through verses, uh, the rest of the verses uh, 16 through 32, the other gates are enumerated. You can highlight them in your Bible. But the other two that are left out, uh, we don't know exactly why they're left out. Maybe they didn't need repairs. But the Spirit only speaks of these 10 gates for very specific reasons. Especially, and again, I, I have my hypothesis as why the other two gates are left out, but regardless of why they're left out, this is exactly the number of gates the Holy Spirit once mentioned, especially as they rela relate to the life of a believer and then the revelation of Jesus in the New Testament and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Let me explain why this might be the case. In the book of Exodus... In the giving of the law, the Lord gave how many commandments? Ten. Ten commandments. There's ten gates here. Ten commandments for Israel to live by. In the New Testament, we live by, as the book of James says, the law of liberty. The law of liberty. Isn't that great? Not a law of condemnation, but the law of liberty. In the New Testament life of believer... The law of God is written on, the heart, on our hearts, right? We still love the law. We still love the Ten Commandments. They've been written on the tablets of our hearts. But we'll see that these ten gates are lived out and through us as we walk in the Holy Spirit. Remember in the Old Testament, they were supposed to make it to what? The promised land. The picture of salvation was when they passed through the Red Sea, right? The wilderness was not... Um, they weren't saved coming out of the wilderness. The promised land was the life of the Spirit. They were saved coming through the Red Sea. Then they got bogged down. And sometimes in our Christian life, we get bogged down, don't we? And we need to walk in the Spirit. In the Scriptures, the numbers that God uses are never a random thing. Would you agree with that? The numbers are never random. And God says, oh, I wonder if I should use three or four in this case, Right? The number 10 is found 242 times in the Bible. In addition to the Ten Commandments, there were 10 plagues poured out in Egypt. Remember that? 10 plagues poured out. Not 12, not 11, not 9, 10. But these gates, rather than law or judgment, 10 Commandments, 10 plagues, they're not law, they're not judgment, they're the fulfillment of the new life in Christ, these 10 gates. There are a number of other significant 10s in the Bible, in the Scriptures. In Genesis chapter 1, for example, the, word, the phrase God said is used ten times. Ten times in Genesis 1 it says God said. The Passover lamb was to be selected on the tenth day of the first month. On the tenth day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. The tithe is what? It's a tenth. 
It's a tenth of our earnings. Uh, we see it throughout Scripture, representing our trust and giving back to God as he has given to us. The number ten, along with three, seven, and twelve, are viewed as perfect and complete numbers in the Scriptures. The number ten, it indicates law. It indicates responsibility. It indicates a witness. It indicates completion. And this is fascinating directly as it's pertinent to our lives as believers. Paul writes to the saints to be complete. You want to be complete? To be complete. Hebrews says to become complete. The city was incomplete without the walls and the gates being repaired and restored. And we as believers, we're incomplete, aren't we? Oftentimes, we're incomplete. We're in disrepair, or we're vulnerable to attacks in our lives if these gates are not addressed and fortified in our life. These gates are spiritual necessities, not optional. Like, well, I think I'd like three of these gates in my life, but not the other seven. That's like saying, well, I'm, I'm in favor of some of the Ten Commandments, but about a few of them I'd rather be without, right? No, they all matter. These, are, these gates are spiritual necessities. But they're also comforts to us, and they're blessings to us. These gates are not to keep us in. They're allowing us to go in and out, right? Because these gates are locked sometimes, and they're opened other times. It represents the freedom we have in the Lord. Free, we have his safety, but we also have his free passage in life. And hopefully these things make more sense as we go along. Now, three things to kind of understand as we take a look at these gates and as they pertain to Nehemiah coming and literally uh, hanging these gates. Do I have? There we go. We'll come back to that. Um, let's take a look here at three things to be aware of when we are seeing and securing these days, uh, the gates. When Nehemiah, remember he goes out in the middle of the night and he scouts the land and he looks at the state of each one. God had told him, hey, I want you to come back. You've got to repair the walls, repair the gates, rehang these doors. And the first thing we need to do when we're looking at these gates from a spiritual perspective, in the same way that Nehemiah had to look at them from a literal standpoint, because they were real gates, but we're looking spiritually. These are real needs in our life. We have to acknowledge, so these 10 gates, so we, we want to look at them. What are they? Acknowledge them. What is their purpose? What is the purpose of each of these gates in our life? Jesus said in Matthew eleven nine, learn from me, right? Learn from me. One of the titles that Jesus had was teacher, right? We're to learn what he wants us to know about these things as they pertain to our Christian life and our Christian walk. The second is to assess. Nehemiah had to assess the gates, didn't he? Where, how much repair did they need? Did, was it was a complete redo. Was it modifying one? Was it reinforcing one? We have to take stock of the real condition of our Christian walk in each of these gates. Not the condition we wish it was, the condition it actually is. And who helps us determine that? The Holy Spirit, right? Psalm 139, 23. 
The psalmist writes, search me, O God, and know my heart. We need God. A lot of times we don't know our own heart, do we? We think we know it. We think it's pure, and then God allows something to jostle us that day, and we realize, it wasn't quite as pure as I thought. My motives are the best. A couple days later, we're envious, we're jealous. We realize, I don't really have the best motives after all. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Show me, Lord, the real assessment. I think I'm really good, Lord, at enduring trials. God says, oh, really? I've never said that, by the way. I wouldn't advise you to say that either. If you like to brag that you are really good about going through trials, you might want to not do that. He definitely can help you get better at that and help me get better at that. And I said, Lord, I'm not good at that, you know. But you are good at helping me go through. Number three, action. So if we acknowledge and we appreciate, we acknowledge what they're for. We understand the purpose of these things. We assess by the help of the Lord. All right, Lord, Lord, here's where I'm at. I need a lot of help in this area. Bring people who can disciple me. Help me to, uh, to meditate on your word in this area. But the third is to take action. With the Lord's help, we have to strengthen and repair. Nehemiah wasn't told, hey, once you realize how they are, go back to Persia. No. Now put the gates and the walls up. 2 Peter 1.10, he says, Brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. Peter said, Brethren, church, you have to do the things God is stirring in you. Uh, that is one of the ways we know we're the ch children of God because we actually do the things Jesus said many times. Don't be just hearers, but doers. His half-brother James would go on to write the same thing in the book of James. Be doers of these things, not just hearers only. So we want to look uh, this morning at five of the gates, and we'll get to the rest of them uh, in, uh, next week, and then uh, we'll finish up the rest of the chapter the week after. But let's look at this first one again. Even though we looked at it last week, we want to uh, better appreciate uh, how it fits in with the ten gates as a whole, the sheep gate. Now, the sheep gate, remember on the map, this is where the construction began, right up here. The high priest and the priest, they started working up there uh, in the corner, and that would be the northeast corner of the city. Uh, that was where the flat plateau was. That was the most vulnerable land uh, to attack. It didn't have the topography on both sides. The Mount of Olives sits on the east. And by the way, again, when we go to Israel, you'll see the Mount of Olives is right here. And then you've got on the other side um, hills and uh, there's a valley there. And then it goes right back up and slopes back up again. But in the Sheep Gate, we looked at last week in just a little bit of review, the lambs for sacrifice entered that gate. Now, looking at your map, the temple is right there. So you can see it's a quick little walk from the Sheep Gate bringing the sheep into the temple for sacrifice. And they had to be brought into a specific area of the temple. They weren't brought through the front door. I mean, they had a spot where the, the sheep were. They had to be inspected and then they would be prepared for sacrifice. But they would enter the sheep gate. And the lambs entered that gate. But Jesus, well, he's the lamb sent from God. And he also entered the sheep gate. And it's only through the blood sacrifice of the spotless lamb of God that we can be cleansed from sin. Uh, the animal sacrifices could go on for eternity and not satisfy our sin debt. It was only the blood of one lamb, the spotless lamb of Jesus, 
that cleanses our sins. And everyone, everyone, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, didn't he? Everyone has to enter the sheep gate. There's no other gate where you can enter to be saved. And again, this is more of an allusion to salvation. You don't have to literally ever make it to Jerusalem to get saved, thankfully, right? But you do have to enter through the gate of Jesus. You do have to come as a lamb to the lamb, as a sheep to the shepherd. And the building began at the sheep gate just as our salvation begins with the spotless lamb of God. The great hymn, and I'm sure many of you have known it, some of you may even walk forward uh, for your salvation, the great hymn, Just As I Am. You know that one? Written in 1835, it describes the spiritual essence of the sheep gate, where the perfect lamb cleansed us and made us his sheep. And the words go, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy what? Blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. That hymn still to this day speaks of the necessity of the Lamb and the sheep gate for each of us to come humbly and say, Lord, I need your help for salvation. By the way, uh, when Billy Graham came to Christ in 1934, he came when that song was playing. And then he went on, and when he became an evangelist, he often more times than not, that song was playing at crusades when people would stream down coming to Christ. But not only has the blood of the Lamb saved us, but it's transformed us, and it's given us access to the temple. But not just the physical temple. We now have access to the Holy of Holies where? In heaven, where Jesus sits. He's not only the Lamb, but he's also the high priest. And by the way, he's also the king. Which though were all those, by the way, in the history of Israel, those were three separate hats: king, high priest, and um, the sacrifice itself. You know, that was something the priests didn't sacrifice themselves. But Jesus was the sacrifice; he was the high priest, but he's also the king. But we have access to the holy of holies. In the days of Nehemiah, only the high priest, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, and that could only happen one day per year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Only once per year could even the high priest enter into the Holy of Holies. But in Hebrews 9.11, it says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. The good things to come. The good things to come is the better covenant that we have received in Jesus. He gives us access to himself by himself, into the holy place by his own blood. We used to sing a song in the 90s. I, I don't hear worship teams singing as often now, uh, but we used to sing a song a lot. I remember when I was first going to Calvary Chapel in the mid-90s. Take me into the holy of holies. Take me in by the blood of the lamb. That's the sheep gate. That's going all the way, not just salvation, but all the way into relationship. All the way into walking with the Lord. Being able to go in your prayer life, right in to the throne room of God by grace. It's only, it's the only way. There's only one gate. There's only one sacrifice. There's only one Savior. This is why the building began on this part of the wall. This is why it finishes here. Look at verse 32. Again, the last mention of any gate is in the 32nd verse. It's mentioned in verse 1. Verse 1 is the sheep gate. Verse 32, and between the upper room and the corner, as far as the 
Sheepgate. Sheepgate is the first verse. Sheepgate is the last verse. Why? Well, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the work of the cross, is central to the gospel. It's central to the church. It's central to our faith. It's central to our personal salvation. And by the way, it's central for all eternity. We may only celebrate the resurrection in a really formal manner every Easter Resurrection Sunday, but not in heaven. Resurrection Day will be every day there. Amen? And it, we'd be wise to start making it more of an everyday thing in our own lives, wouldn't we? Let's take a look at the next gate. We look at the sheep gate. The next comes the fish gate. In the time of Nehemiah, this gate was for the seafood lover in you. This, uh, this gate right here. Um, this is your red lobster gate, folks. For those of you that love seafood, fresh fish, dried fish, salted fish, Friday night fish, this was your spot to load up right here. This was the gate for you to go to. If you liked fish, you had to go to the fish gate. That's where the market would be brought in. This is the gate where the fish were brought from the Mediterranean uh, towards this, um, you know, they would be, the Mediterranean is west, so they'd be coming northwest towards the city. Uh, not everyone is going to be a fisherman. Not everyone's going to like seafood. My wife can attest to that. Uh, but Jesus wants everyone that comes to faith in him, and here's where the New Testament parallel comes, he wants everyone to be a fisher of what? Men. Jesus used those words. You think it was an accident that he picked fishermen? It's like, I wonder who I should pick. Well, I'll just take a random guess. No. He knew that he was going to tie in the fact that all believers would be fishers of men, tie that into the fact that the Old Testament alludes to this here. We've got this fish gate, again, a picture of the New Testament walk and life in Christ. The first thing Andrew did is he went and he found what? Or who? His brother Peter. First thing he did. If you've been forgiven and given eternal life, you're going to want to tell somebody. I mean, if you've really been saved, if you've really received eternal life, if you really receive something that you know, you know is worth more than trillions of dollars, not you think it is. I'm holding a pen here. How much is this worth? 50 cents? I'm not highly motivated to go tell everybody where they can get one of these. You need to know where you can get this big pen. It is amazing. It's got a top. And it goes like this. You can take the top off. You can put the top on. If you're a kid in high school, you can chew it till there's nothing left. Uh, you have one of these right here. You've got to find one of these. This is amazing. It writes with black. It's, it's so cool. You, no. But if you have something that really is eternal life, you're going to want to tell somebody. The response of a heart saved by Christ is that others would also be saved. Did you know studies have shown studies have shown that believers saved less than two years bring more people to Christ than believers saved more than two years? Isn't that interesting? Believers saved less than two years bring more. Now, there are some practical reasons for that. Uh, I remember when I first got saved, one of the reasons why this happens is when you first get saved, your unsaved friends are still near you. The longer you're saved, they disappear, right? 
You're like, hey, what happened? Did you change your number? I mean, what happened? So there is some practical reason. This isn't always to put a, you know, a condemnation or guilt trip on. Well, I, I, wow, I used to share my... Well, some, in some respects, your, your ring of unsaved people are closer to you. But that doesn't negate the fact that Jesus wants us to grow as fishers of men and to share with people we don't know. This gate is to be maintained throughout our life. Not that we're really good at it when we first get saved when we're excited, but to remain excited about the faith that we've been given. Remain excited about eternal life. This gate, Jesus wants to maintain it in our life, these ten gates. He says, I want you to shore them up in your life. In a wider sense, this gate also speaks to all service. Our worship team up here serving today. People greeting. People serving children's ministry. Why? Because in a wider sense, the fishers of men also speaks to work. Do you think fishermen work hard? Of course they do. It's a dirty job. Smells great, right? You know, you, 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 you put in long hours. You get cuts. Service is difficult, but service of Christ, the service that you do for the Lord, should be for one particular goal, and that is to bring the world to saving faith in Jesus. Even when people are over there uh, in the nursery right now, they're helping towards the greater call of the church and the Great Commission to reach the world. So in a wider sense, all service and all ministry is also included in this gate to shore up in our life. Uh, serving in the body of Christ should lend itself to the Great Commission because the church should be focused on the Great Commission. But Jesus said specifically to all of us to be fishers of men. Fishing isn't an easy job. Sometimes, many, some of you men that like to fish, you come up empty, right? Sometimes you fish hard and get no fish. That ever happened when we share our faith? Of course. Sometimes we come up empty. But not actually. It can be tiring. It can be monotonous. We can keep going out there with the same lure, which is the God. We don't get a, by the way, we don't get a different lure. It's always the same gospel. And we can go back out again and again. We're, we're told Jesus keep going back out to the waters of the world. And Jesus will sometimes by his spirit say, cast your net on this side. Right? No, 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 not that. I've done that. The Lord said, no, no, no. Cast your nets on this side and watch what happens. But that only happens as we live life in the spirit where he guides us where to fish, where to cast out uh, the gospel. Now, we get tired of it in the sense that we get weary. We get fatigued. We sometimes uh, get bummed out when people say no 10 times in a row, or, hey, I don't want to hear it, or no, I'm not interested in going to church, and all that stuff. And that's why when we get to the fountain gate, you and I need the fountain gate. It's a hint. Or you can, you can try and figure out what the fountain gate's all about. Well, we'll get there. The fountain gate's important because each gate also needs the other gates. All the gates are supportive of the city as a whole, and all the gates are supportive of our personal walk as a whole. But part of you cannot have a healthy walk with Christ and never share your faith. It, it will lack. There will be something lacking in the health of your walk if you never share, hey, this is what happened in my life. Hey, I want to invite you to church. We're all called to be fishers of men. Now, some people will catch more fish. Jesus said that there will be different levels of, of um, productivity uh, in even sowers that are doing good work. I mean, some are going to do a hundredfold. Some are going to do less. 
But whether you are a fish company like Billy Graham or a little tiny, you know, I only catch a few, we're all called in some respect to be fishers of men. Uh, for you guys that fish, you also know that fish don't come to you. You have to go find them. If you live on land, they will not just show up in your kitchen sink ready to be cleaned. You're going to have to get dressed, get in the car, drive the boat there. Do it. You're going to have to go to where the fish are. The fish are not coming to us. It's the same with the lost people. The lost people don't generally... The, when I got invited to Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, you know, my hair was getting cut or I got invited another time by a friend. Someone invited me. I didn't say, I'm going to ride around and find the perfect church today to go to. Now, that does happen sometimes. If God does lead people. But for the most part, people invite people. Andrew invited Peter. We are simply to pray and cast out the net. Use our own story of how we came to faith. Say, I don't know every verse about salvation. You don't need to. You can tell yours, and you certainly can tell a few verses about all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Cast out the net. Hudson Taylor said, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. It's not an option to be considered. I think I, uh, maybe, no, every person is to obey the command of the Great Commission, to simply share their faith. Have you? Here's a, a really good question for all of us, because I'll be the first to admit, sharing our faith isn't easy. Some of, some of you would rather go to the dentist than share your faith. I know. You, you, even though you don't really want to do that, no one does. But sharing our faith is not easy because we usually are fearful. And we don't like rejection. We hate rejection. But Jesus said he was despised and rejected of men. That was his whole life was despised and rejected of men. Not part of his life. His whole life he was despised and rejected of men. But if you ask the Lord lately, Lord, help me to be a fisher of men. That simple prayer. Do you believe God will honor that prayer? Simple prayer. Lord, help me to be a fisher of men and women. By this, I don't mean men, just men. All people. Help me to be a fisher of people. That's why we've been given the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that the power of the Holy Spirit would come upon you, that you would be my witnesses. We need the Holy Spirit's help. We're not bold enough. We're not wise enough. We don't have the right words. We don't have the right amount of courage. And more than that, we don't have the right amount of compassion. Right? We don't look out and see that people are on their way to a literal hell if they don't come to Christ. We just see that they look generally happy. So we, we don't need to disturb them. But Jesus said, no, no. I want you to be a fisher of men. Next gate. The old city gate, also called in, in the text here, just the old gate. But it was known by either one, the old city gate or the old gate. What could this gate mean? Is this for older Christians? No, no, this is not just for older Christians. This is for all believers. In Jeremiah 6.16, it says, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where the good way is, and walk in it. Listen to this. Then you will find rest for your souls. Here's, here's what's sad about the people that day. But they said, we will not walk in it. Fold the arm. We will not, nope, we will not find rest. We do not want rest. 
Because rest means we have to listen to the Lord. If you're going to, this is, a, this is a reminder from the Lord via the Holy Spirit, via the Scriptures, to look back and see that some of what God's done is always going to be an encouragement to what He will do again. Here's how it works. If you're going to follow the Lord, you and I are going to have to cling to the same truths, the same exact truths that Noah did. Abraham did, David did, Daniel did, Peter did, Mary did, Rahab did, Paul did, right? Same thing, same faith, same truths. There is no new truth that God is giving, none. Everything that was given is still the same today. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. By the way, there's no new morality you ever hear that term? Not with God. There is no new morality. God doesn't say, you know what? That morality stuff that I gave you back in the Ten Commandments, it's way outdated. There's no new morality. Theological truth, I said this a couple Wednesday nights ago, and I didn't coin it. I don't know who coined it, but if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Theologically, there are new things that are true, but not, theolo- not, not that come from God. Whatever God has said, this is how marriage works, is the same forever. It doesn't change. We cling to an old, rugged cross. Amen? An old, rugged cross. Not a new cross of convenience that's no cross at all. Amen? An old, rugged cross. Another perspective here is to not forget the ways God has worked in the past in our own lives. Hey, well, I can't remember anything God has done lately. That's because we just don't want to think sometimes. But when we start to think back, all the prayers God has answered in the past, it reminds us, oh, yeah, he's taken me down some paths, and he'll be faithful again in the ones to come. We don't live in the past. We're not to live in the past. Paul said pressing forward. We don't live in the past, but yet we're not to forget how the Lord has been faithful to us in the past. Why do you think Paul retold his testimony? That wasn't living in the past. That was rejoicing in what God had done in the past, but not living in the past. When you tell your testimony, which is something God did great in the past, you're telling it that God will do something great in the present for the person you're talking to. Amen? It's not just old news that we got saved. It shouldn't be just old news. The old gate is a great gate. To remember, God did this, and if he did this for us for salvation, what will he do in the future walk, in the present walk? Just like it's our, our testimony is a memorial. Not a memorial to us, but a memorial to who? The Lord. Jesus said it this way, return to your first love. Remember the old love you used to have? That's what you're saying. Remember when you first got saved? Jesus said, you need to go back there. I don't, I don't live in the past. No, but you back there had the faith of the saints of old. He wants us to not forget. Next gate, the valley gate. This gate, it led into a valley, right? You come out of the city, straight down into a valley. And 
whether we like it or not, the Lord is going to lead us into valley periods in our life. Every Christian gets this gate too. There's no escaping it. Everyone will go into valleys. There will be valley periods in our lives. But it's in the valley we learn to lean on the Lord. We don't really learn to lean on the Lord when things are going great, when the money's rolling in, when the health is perfect, when there's not a care in the world. Um, I was talking to my own daughters about this. Um, David said, I said in my heart, I shall not. No, he said, I said in my prosperity, I shall not be moved. The whole rest of that chapter is David crying out for mercy. David realized it was a big mistake for him to say in his prosperity, I shall not be moved. This is America, by the way. America says in its prosperity, we shall not be moved. Our army's better. Our navy's better. Our navy seals are better. Our economy's better. Our everything's better. Our buildings are better. Our schools are better. I don't know why they say that, but anyway, all these things are better. Right? And so in our prosperity, we say, we don't need God now. Moses told the children of Israel, once you, once you have for a while been out of Egypt, after you start to build up your gold and silver reserves, you will not want God. That was not a popular message that he preached that day. But he told me, he goes, you will not want him. You'll not need him. You'll walk away, and then you'll be enslaved. Well, David and Solomon, his son, were two incredibly prosperous men. Solomon, to this day, is probably the richest man that ever lived, and we know he was the wisest. His intellect, uh, you, would have, you would have loved to have seen him sit at like a TED conference and just expound on anything. Just give him a, just give him a topic. He'll go deep, wide, anything you want. But they had all the prosperity, and what happened, even to David for a period of time, he went away from the Lord because he looked at his prosperity and said, I shall not be moved. He did a census, which God told him not to do, caused many people to die with Bathsheba. Now he came back. Solomon, I believe he came back at the very end as well, but he was a picture of you could have everything and still not find peace. So the Lord doesn't want us to live on the mountain. He gives us valleys to learn to trust him. And though we may not like that, and we may not choose that, this is where God really develops in us a deeper faith. It's where we overcome fear. It's where he protects us. It's where we learn, well, we don't, we don't like this one either, where we learn humility. Humility. We're not so strong. We're not really that smart. We're not really that great. The valleys show us these things. It's opposite of the mountaintop experience, but it's in the valleys, it's in the valley where David said, I lift up my eyes to the hills, where hence my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord. Chuck Swindoll said, Pastor Chuck Swindoll said, uh, when you suffer and lose, that does not mean you're being disobedient to God. In fact, it might mean you're right in the center of his will. The path of obedience is often marked by times of suffering and loss. The path of obedience, everyone has to walk through this gate. Not fun to walk through the valleys, it's not enjoyable but we actually will develop a deeper peace, a deeper love for God. We act, you know what else happens in the valley? We actually recognize everyone else is in the valleys. 
and then we're able to minister because our valley experience allow us to really minister. If all you ever lived in was a penthouse, you can never relate to anybody down there in the slums at all. God says, you've got to get down where the people are. You've got to learn these things. If we were designing the Christian life, there would be no path to valleys. Our paths would be to ice cream stores, malls, bass pro shops, all kinds of stuff. like that. That's where our paths would lead. But the Lord says, no, this is the, this is the path you've got to go through. Last, last gate that we'll touch on just this morning. Again, can you see each of these gates in the Christian life? I mean, they're, they're crystal. If you read the New Testament, they should just stand out very easily to you. You say, wow, I, I recognize that. All of these are there. They're in my life. They should be in our life. And we all need repair on these gates. We all need some repair on all these gates. Everyone. There's no one in here that says, well, I've aced all of it. My, my gates are perfect. They shut right, open right. Everything's, no, no. We all need some work here. And then the fifth one, we know we all need work on this. This is called the dung gate or also called the refuse gate. Um, not a great name for a gate either way, but uh, that was what it was called. And it had a very functional purpose, uh, this gate. You have a bathroom in your house, uh, that, uh, you have trash cans in your house, the dung gate was where the trash and the filth, all kinds of trash, any kind of filth and trash had to go out of this gate. You didn't want it going out of all gates because you wanted one gate that was specific for that function. It's very important for the health and the sanitation of that city or any city you know how gross cities like London were like two years ago? They didn't have uh, actual sanitation. There was just kind of like any, throw the trash out the window, throw the water pot out the window. I mean, that was just normal stuff, but not God's way. God's way, no, no, no. Clean with running water, have a place for the trash. God's very orderly like that. And those of you that are orderly people, you're like, yes, I like that. You know, I don't like the bathroom in the living room or anything like that. I don't want trash cans everywhere. Very important for health and sanitation, certainly of this city, but any city. But does anyone here say, you know, it's just too much work taking the trash out. We're done of the house. It's too much work taking the trash out. We're not going to take it out anymore. We're just going to let it pile up in the house because it's just too much work. Not going to do it. We're going to let it pile up. It can't hurt anything, right? Can't hurt anything to let that Domino's pizza just sit there for the next 10 years in the house. No need to wash the dishes. Just let that lasagna sit on there forever. <laughs> let them become science projects. The kids will learn something in that way, right? <laughs> something to learn from mold. No need to flush the toilets. What a waste of water, right? The environment is better if we don't waste all that water, right? Now, we know that trash, unclean dishes, stagnant water, lack of uh, proper plumbing. I don't like to mention that here because we have our own dung gate out here that we've been dealing with, right? Um, we have a real example here, a real life example. We have our own little Jerusalem, if you will. Um, we're trying to get it fixed. And we're, uh, by the way, the contract said that we'll be threading the needle to have it done by Easter. I'm like, please, I have a needle. There's a scriptural parallel there. Let's thread the needle. So pray that we get it done by Easter. Even if it doesn't happen by Easter, we'll be fine. We're close. We're, we're finally close. But regardless of that situation, we know uh, that 
it's not good to let the trash and the filth fester. We have to daily, I hope you're already seeing where the spiritual parallel this is going, right? We have to daily come to Jesus and have him cleanse the filth in us. We've got a lot of dirty dishes in here. Toilets that need to be flushed. Trash that needs to be taken out. Jesus wants to clean the filth that our flesh produces. You know how every week, we have the, in our house, we have the recycle thing that we have to wheel out to the road, and we have the trash thing. I'm amazed at how we keep filling both of them up week after week after week. Even when I say, this week, we're not going to have as much recycled. There it is. Filled again. We also produce that amount of waste of flesh every week, too, don't we? Every day. We're just like, this day, I'm going to be better than I was, right? Somehow, we produce a certain amount, even though we love the Lord. Even though we're doing our best to pray and serve, we still have a little bit of trash that continues to be produced and has to be taken out. And so there's a dung gate in the sense when we come to Jesus in our daily life and we bring the trash and the filth to him and he cleans it out. He removes it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 1 says, Beloved. Isn't that a great word? Beloved. This isn't some condemning verse. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh. This is for Christians, by the way perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is for Christians. Christians have to get rid of the filth. It builds up envy, jealousy, anger, lust, dishonesty, hypocrisy, all of these things. They build up in us, and they build up throughout the day, and you can't go months like that, or you have stacks of pizza boxes. You can't do anything. You don't want to invite anyone over in that case. Everything's a mess. But it's interesting, by the way. It's a little interesting to me. Did you know where the dung gate is today? If you go to Israel with us, you'll see this. The dung gate today is the entrance to the Western Wall, which is the Wailing Wall. The dung gate comes right in to where the Wailing Wall is today. Um, that's a place of prayers place of confessions, asking God's help. The problem is many of the people at the Wailing Wall, which the Jewish people there do not call it the Wailing Wall, do not tell them it's the Wailing it's the Western Wall. But it's called the Wailing Wall because people, you will see them sometimes crying and weeping at that wall. Though they won't call it that, they'll only call it the Western Wall. But it has been given that secondary name, if you will. And it's appropriate in the sense that people are crying there. But the only one you can cry out to for all of our sins to be dealt with is Jesus. Not past rabbis, not Judaism as a faith, Jesus the Messiah. And the same is true for us. Each day, you're going to need to ask Jesus to cleanse you tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and every day after that. But 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, that happens at salvation, but even after salvation, we still have to man the dung gate, man the refuse gate, and we do that in our prayer life. And sometimes we also have to man that refuse gate by going to our brothers and sisters and I'm sorry I sinned against you. Did you know that? Sometimes you have to take out your neighbor's trash. Because we have been 
offensive and we have to make those things right. And we're to bring these things and get them out of our lives. The things God wants us to toss out of our lives, by the way, are not always sin. It's not always sin. Yes, primarily we need forgiveness. Primarily we need refreshing and cleansing. But we also have weights. We also have have habits and baggage that is keeping us from running an effective race for Jesus. Leonard Ravenhill said, how can you pull down strongholds of Satan if you don't even have the strength to turn off your TV? Ouch, that hurts, right? So how are you going to pull down strongholds? That was back when you had to like take the pliers and turn the TV. This is, now it's just a click. So you're not going to pull down strongholds if you don't get rid of some of the weights. I'm not saying get rid of your TVs. I'm saying chew, and God may tell you that. But it is to say that the Lord says, hey, some of these things you've just got to snip out of your life. They're just rubbish. They, they're just holding you back. You can be the most organized, neat freak, spotless house, perfectly spotless car, and office person sitting here today. And yet spiritually, you may be a hoarder of worthless things. Spiritually speaking, you might be a hoarder of worthless things that are holding you back from really serving Jesus Christ. And Jesus is saying, take it to the refuse gate, toss it out, lay it out there, lay it aside, and run with freedom. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you again for your word. Lord, you had your servant Nehemiah build these literal gates, but they speak to our spiritual condition. And Lord, we want to effectively and in obedience have each of these gates reinforced, repaired in our lives. I pray, Lord, in this coming week, you'd speak to each person, and Lord, each and every person here, we would come to you honestly. Say, Lord, where am I at in these areas? And Lord, by a spirit of humility and obedience, Lord, we would say, yes, Lord, I will obey and make things right with the help of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.